So, Thursday night started a, a big night, right? Some of you guys are like, yeah, Thursday night was a big night. Some of you are like, I have no clue what you're talking about. Thursday night was like another day and I had to get the kids ready for school and I'm just busy with all these things. Thursday night was the start of the new NFL football season. Can I get an amen? Uh, there's a few of you with that. So, so, so Thursday night for some of you was like, yes. And today you're like, yes, football is back. And there are some of you that are like, oh crap. I'm going to, my husband is going to be gone for the next three months, right? He's going to be so consumed with football and, and the Seahawks and what's happening with this and that. And, and depending on your filter, we all have a different filter. Some of us, our filter as football is probably the greatest thing that God has given us since the church. Maybe not really, but, but we have this high view of football. And some of us are like, you know what? I got no use for football. I don't understand it. And, and we have a different filter. See, we all have a filter that, that, that we use, that we see life. And so we look at life around us through our filter. And some of us have a filter that says football and the Seahawks are amazing. And some of us have a distorted filter that says any other team but the Seahawks are amazing. But we all have these filters that we live in. Sometimes they're called a context. Things that, that influence the way that we view life. Several years ago, I had an opportunity to take my son Cameron on a short-term missions trip to the Mississippi Delta. Now, if you're not familiar with the Mississippi Delta, you know, it's amazing as we went through this area, you know, we think America is so civilized. And I'll tell you, there were some places in the Mississippi Delta that looked like we were in a third world country. It's hard to imagine seeing this kind of thing in our country that is a land of prosperity and wealth. So we had the chance to go on this mission trip, and I was one of the leaders of the trip. So before the trip, we had an opportunity to do a conference call with the pastor that we were going to go and serve with. The pastor was an African-American man, and he's talking about some of the things we're going to experience on this trip. And he said, and he started talking about racism. Now, in my context, in my filter, I grew up in the great Pacific Northwest. I grew up in the late 20th, early 21st century. And so my filter says, you know, racism, that, didn't that die in the 70s? I mean, I grew up in a day and age where all people are created equal. I grew up and it didn't matter if you were black, white, or brown. We were all brothers and we all hung out and we all, it, it wasn't an issue. And so he's talking about racism. And I'm like, dude, you're living in the past. You're, you're, my filter did not have a, an avenue to understand racism in the day and culture that we live in today. So we went on this scout trip, me and uh, uh, two other leaders, and, and the pastor is taking us all around these cities. And he's showing us his context. And we're driving down this, the, the street, this main street in this little town. And he says, see that bank right there? Said, yeah, it's a good bank. And he says, I cannot get a loan there. Well, what are you talking about? He says, well, it's the unwritten rule. I'm an African-American. That's a white bank. I cannot get a loan there. He says, see that church right there? And I'm like, yeah, that's a great building. Great looking church. He said, there was a, a, a young man who was a Caucasian young man who brought his African-American friend to church because he wanted his friend to hear the gospel. And he said, that young man's family got kicked out of the church for what that young man did. See, context 
is everything. Context is everything. We have our own little filter, our own little context that we view life in. And some of that is, is a little ignorant to what happens on the rest of the world. But we have this context. And somebody else's context looks so different than us. And they view life differently from us because they have come from a different context. And I tell you, having that opportunity to go on the mission trip, it opened and expanded my context to understand a little bit more of what people who don't live in my context have to live with. And as we think about the things that have happened in Ferguson the last couple of months, I have a little different understanding of what happens in Ferguson because of what I saw in the Mississippi Delta. So context is key. Context is so important because it becomes the lens from which we view life. If you have a Bible today, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. If you need a Bible, if you just want to slip your hand up, we've got an usher in the back, uh, Mr. Herring, who would love to uh, come and bring one of these and put one of these in your hands. Uh, In Joshua chapter 24, there is a famous verse. Does anybody know what the verse is? Anybody? Joshua 24 verse 15. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay. Now, now this is one of those famous Bible verses. This is, is you go into a Christian bookstore and you're going to see this verse on the coffee mug. You're going to see this verse put on t-shirts. You're going to go into people's houses and you're going to see people with this, 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 a sign on their wall that has this verse. Choose this day whom you'll serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's one of those really feel-good verses that makes us feel really good. Yeah, I'm gonna, I choose. I choose God. I choose the Lord. But again, I want you to understand that context is everything. Sometimes we slap that on our Christian t-shirt or we slap that on our Christian coffee mug and it makes us feel really good. But do we really understand the implications for what Joshua is saying when he's saying, choose you this day. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So what we want to do today is we want to look at that verse. We want, to, we want to look at that choice. Every one of us is going to be presented with that choice today. Who will you serve? But before you just decide, hey, I'm going to choose, oh, I choose God, that's easy. I want us to look at the context of what Joshua says this choice is regarding. Because it's not just some simple choice. It's not like deciding, should we go to Antojitos or to Second Street Grill for lunch after church today? There are so much more implications to this decision that we have got to understand. So before we jump in, would you pray with me again? God, as we are here now to open up your word, I pray that you would give us a better understanding. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what this decision really implies. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God, I pray that you would help us to understand it's not just about accepting Jesus. It's not just about, 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 about serving in the church, but really, God, it's about surrendering our entire life. God, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, our ears, that you would give us understanding today. In your name, amen. 
Verse 1 of chapter 24 is going to kind of lay out the foundation, lay out the, uh, what's happening in this chapter. It says in verse 1, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. See, what's happening is we know Joshua is at the end of his life and he's getting ready to give his final words to the entire congregation of Israel. We saw in the previous chapter, chapter 23, Joshua brought all the leaders forward and he, and he charged the leaders to remember what God has done for them so that they would remain faithful. And now Joshua is calling all the people together to a place called Shechem. This was a very special place to Israel. This was a place so many years before that God had brought Abraham And God initiated this covenant promise. God said, Abraham, you see this land? You see all of this land? He said, Abraham, I'm going to give this to you and to your people. And so this place is a very special place to the Israelites. And and it says that they presented themselves before God. See, one of the characteristics we know about God is God is omnipresent. He's in all places at all times. God is always there. But when it says they presented themselves before the Lord, there is a special way that God is present when his people are gathered to hear his word. This is why the gathering in the church is such a beautiful thing. As we come together and and God presents himself in a very special way when we are gathered together to worship and to honor him. And what Joshua is going to do is he's going to prepare the people to make this choice. There are two parts of the context that I want us to look at this morning. uh, The context of the choice. The first is found in verses 2 through 14. And it's going to be a review of covenant history. He's going to look at the covenant history all the way from Abraham. When God brought Abraham to this place and said, I'm going to give you this land all the way forward to Joshua. And the day that they are living in right then and right there. The second context that we'll look at will uh, be verses 16 through 21, and that'll be counting the cost. But we'll start first with the context of covenant history. So let's, let's start reading in verse 2. It says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham. Okay, we're going we're gonna to stop right there. Because this is something I don't want us to miss. Notice that Joshua says that they served other gods. Terah, Abraham's father, served other gods. His brother, Nahor, served other gods. And it says that, that, it says that God took Abraham out of that setting. What is Abraham doing with his dad and his brother? Serving other gods. Now, what happens is we often look at a dude like Abraham and, and, and we look at him like he's some sort of a saint. Like, 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 of course, God would choose Abraham because he's so righteous, because he has everything all figured out, because he's such a religious dude. I mean, we picture Abraham in a nice suit and tie, helping old ladies across the street and fighting against the pagan influences of his time. I mean, we picture Abraham as a dude who's already bent towards obeying God, who is already on his way to the truth of God. And and God just shows up to finish what Abraham already started in his life. And we picture this Boy Scout picture of Abraham. 
But that's not what the text says. It, it says they served other gods. It says Terah, Nahor, Abraham, they served other gods. They dedicated their lives to worshiping a false gods. So this clean-cut, good Boy Scout picture of Abraham isn't necessarily correct. For all we know, Abraham could have been the crazy biker dude with tattoos covering his entire body who lives at the bar and is always looking for a fight. For all we know, Abraham, he could have been the dude standing on the street corner begging for money so he can go get his next fix. I mean, this is the context of what Abraham was living in. It was from this context of of idol worship of serving everything else except God. It was from that context that verse 3 says, God took Abraham out of that and chose him to be the forefather of the Israelite nation. Abraham had nothing to offer. He wasn't chosen because of his great assets. He wasn't chosen because of his amazing faith. He wasn't chosen because he had this great dedication to God. He was chosen only Because of God's amazing grace. See, God is a God of amazing grace. He, Abraham, was chosen because God reached out and touched his life. Not because Abraham was so awesome. This is why John Newton, so many years ago, he wrote that song saying that amazing grace is truly amazing God's grace is truly amazing. It is so amazing that we can't even fully understand how great God's grace is. It's unimaginable. It's unexplainable. It, it is, it is, it is un, um, unexpected. God chose Abraham out of a life of sin and darkness and completely changed his life. And this is still true today. God chooses us to serve him and to follow him, not because we're awesome, not because we have so much to offer him, not because we are so good, but because of his amazing grace. He chooses to love you and I and every one of us. And I find myself completely encouraged that God's chosen people, they hung on a single thread of God's amazing grace that for no apparent reason, God took Abraham, the sinner, the idol worshiper, and God used him to give birth to his chosen people. He continues verse three, and he says, then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. And I made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac and to Isaac. I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children, they went down to Egypt. Now, did you, did, did you catch that? It said Esau, who is not the, 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 the chosen people. Esau, God gave them a land. God gave them an inheritance. God gave them Seir, uh, uh, the hill country. And what did God give to Jacob and the chosen family. What did God give to them? Egypt. And what happened in Egypt? They became enslaved. And so you look at this and you say, how does this make sense? How does the the, the people who don't worship God, who aren't God's people, how does God bless them and give them an inheritance? But then God's chosen people, they're led into captivity. 
How is that right? How, how is that, that fair? It doesn't make sense. Why do God's people sometimes experience hardship while others experience blessing and reward? You see, I don't have that answer. But one thing I do know is as Joshua is, is giving, this, giving us this covenant history, he's, he's telling the story of the covenant history, I know that God is not done when Israel is in Egypt and enslaved. Their story is not finished. God is still working. God is still involved. He's not done yet. So he continues in verse 5, and he says, I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what uh, I did in the midst of it. And afterwards, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians, remember the Egyptians, they pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. And he made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. See, the story wasn't finished. God sent Moses and Aaron. God plagued the Egyptians. God brought his people out. God brought them to the Red Sea. God put darkness between Egypt and the Israelites. And God crushed the Egyptians with the water. And who's the hero of that story? God. Israel brought nothing to the table. Moses, he was not the genius behind the exodus. Israel wasn't, uh, the victory, the, the, the freedom wasn't because of Israel. It was because of God. See, the story of the exodus has got to be one of the most amazing stories in all of the Bible that show God's power, that show God's amazing grace and God's love towards his children. And we say, well, why? Well, why? What was the purpose of the exodus? Look at verse, underline this in verse 7. Joshua says, and your eyes saw what God did in Egypt. The whole story of Egypt, the whole story of the exodus, it's God's way of showing Israel, of showing the Egyptians of exactly who he is. This is God's way of saying, I want you to see that, that I have absolute authority over all creation. I want you to see that my worthiness is greater than anything this world has to offer. See, the story of the Exodus, it is one of those amazing stories. And God is revealed to be absolutely awesome and amazing. But you know what? You got to think about it this way. The amazing story of the Exodus, the, the miraculous revelation of who God is, it could not have happened if it weren't for Egypt. It, couldn't, it wouldn't have been amazing if Israel wasn't in slavery, if they weren't at the end of the rope. See, before there was an Exodus, there had to be an Egypt. And sometimes we look and we say, hey, I don't understand why God blesses some people and why God causes hardships on others. But before there can be an exodus, there has to be an Egypt. Before God can do something amazing, before God can, can, can show himself in such power and might, first comes Egypt. And God's amazing grace, he shows his power on behalf of his people. He rescues them and he shows the love that he has for them. 
He reveals himself to Israel. The history lesson continues in verse 8. Joshua writes and says, Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of, the land, of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, he arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. Isn't that a great story? <laughs> so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Gergesites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you have not labored and cities that you have not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. See, God's saying this. God's saying, I made your enemies bless you. I destroyed your enemies. You didn't win these battles. We've gone through the entire book of Joshua and, and we've heard time and time and time and time and time again. It was God who got the victory. It was God who, who won the battle. And, and sure, the Israelites were involved, but it was God who had done the heavy lifting. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, you did not defeat these enemies. I gave them to you. It was not by your sword, but it was by my hand. See, this whole historical account that Joshua is giving, this whole review of the covenant history, it's not just to show what God has done. It's not just to remind them of what they have been through. This story was not a rallying cry so that people would have nationalism and love their, their brothers and sisters to say, we're such a great people. No, see, this review of the covenant history was a declaration of exactly who God is. Joshua is declaring that the great I am is the sovereign God. He is the one true God. He is the God of amazing grace. He is greater than all else. He is worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise. See, Joshua knows that before we can move on to the implications, before we can make the choice to fully serve him, we must first grasp the source of who God is. We can't move on to the implications until we grasp the source of who God is. Too often what happens is when we come to church, we want to hear a real practical sermon. You know, give me, give me like, give me like five, five ways that I can grow closer to God. And, and I'll t write those down and I'll feel really good because I've got five practical things that I can do. And, and that's what we want to do rather than simply hearing about the nature of who God is, of what he is like. About, about, about his nature of who he is. Honestly, I, I find myself, it's the same thing in my own life. As I think back about the conversations that I've had this past week, it's amazing how much I'm talking about the how-to rather than the who is. Application is absolutely important. Don't get me wrong. But we can never assume that those who are receiving the practical implications, they understand the why. They know the God behind the practical advice. 
I mean, honestly, we cannot begin to love others until we see he who is love. We can't realistically expect to serve until we see he who served completely faithful all the way to death on the cross. We we have to understand who God is in order for our response to be genuine. So before we can be presented with the choice of whom we will serve, we have to understand who God is. We have to understand that the story is not about us. It's about his love for us. That he extends this crazy, amazing grace that makes him alone worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Makes him be the hero, not ourselves. And then he says in verse 14, he says, Now, therefore... I love that word, therefore. When you see that, that means because of what we just heard. Because of this review of history that Joshua has given us. Therefore, he says, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. There is such simplicity to what Joshua is saying here. Sometimes people say, well, what is the Christian life? What does the Christian life look like? Well, here you go. Fear the Lord. Serve him with all sincerity. Serve him with all faithfulness. It's almost a a real simple idea, but it's so difficult to put into practice. Now, when we talk about the fear of God, sometimes we have a hard time grasping what the fear of God means. We see that word, he says, fear the Lord. And sometimes we really do have a hard time with that. Because for some of us, we think of fear and we start thinking about dreaming about some guy named Edward who walks up and down Elm Street. Or, Or some of us, when we hear the word fear, we start thinking about, you know, maybe an abusive relationship. And, and, and we begin to think, hey, I wonder what kind of pain they're going to cause me. At this point. And we have this misguided understanding of what fear really is. And so when we hear the fear of God, we think God is some sort of crazy mean dude. And we should fear the punishment he's going to inflict on us because we've sinned. Because we know that we're sinners. And so when we hear the fear of God, it doesn't become a natural biblical fear. But you see, the the, the Hebrew word for fear can also be translated as respect or reverence. See, the biblical fear of the Lord, in reality, it is a reverent submission that leads to obedience. The fear of the Lord, the biblical fear, is a reverent submission that leads to obedience. And so the context that Joshua is giving us, the context that Joshua is giving about this choice, this choice that every one of us has to make, He says it will require that we fear the Lord, that we serve him in sincerity, and that we serve him faithfully. And notice it is all three. You can't just have sincerity and faithfulness. Sometimes in church we say, hey, we're just going to be sincere and and we'll have faith and that's enough. But Joshua is saying you have to have all three. I mean, if you're to walk into any church today, you're going to find people who are sincere and, and who are faithful. But if they're missing the fear of the Lord, not sure that cuts it. I, I, I th- I'm not sure that sincerity and faithfulness is what saves you. The choice requires all three. A fear of the Lord. A reverent submission to who he is. 
as well as sincerity, as well as faithfulness. And, and, and why, why, why is the fear so important? It's important because of what Joshua just said. It's important because it comes from understanding exactly who he is, who God is. That God isn't about you. He's not about me. God's about himself. And, and out of his love, he extends this amazing grace to each and every one of us so that God would be honored, so that God would be glorified, so that we could have a biblical fear as well as sincerity and faithfulness. So Joshua gives a second context that needs to be understand, something I call a cautioned commitment. We'll look at verse 16. Joshua, of course, in verse 15 says, hey, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're going to serve him. And, and, and the people respond in verse 16, and they say, then the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. He says, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our forefathers up from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord for he is our God. So to Joshua's me and my house, the people respond, yeah, us too. Yeah, us too. We're, we're, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to serve the Lord. But Joshua's response is really curious. Now, I may not be a church planning expert, but, but when somebody raises their hand and says, yeah, I follow, I, I follow Jesus. I'll, I'll, I'll do that thing. I'll, I'll. Shouldn't that be the time that we praise God, we take account, and we publicize, hey, we had another salvation? I mean, shouldn't that be what we do? But look at Joshua's response. Verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. That's just so weird. They say, hey, yeah, us too, we're in, we'll serve him. And he says, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, that he will turn and do harm and consume you. After having done you good. See what I'm going to determine from this. Is, is I don't think that Joshua is concerned with getting the people to agree to accept God. Let's, let's, let's think about this so often. Because this is, this is so many happen, so, what happens so often in Christianity. You know you're given an invitation. We say we want you to accept Jesus. We want you to accept Jesus. And accept him today. I'm going to go on a limb here. See, I don't think God's really concerned with whether or not you accept him. See, James, who is a half-brother of Jesus, he reminds us in James chapter 2, he says, even the demons accept Jesus. They even accept his power. The demons, they could rattle off a history of God and of Jesus, probably greater than any of us could. So Joshua, he's not really concerned with the people accepting Jesus. See, Joshua knows that God is a holy God, that he is a jealous God. And, and the fear is that the people are going to say, hey, we, we accept Jesus and we're going to add Jesus into the rest of our life. We're just going to add a little bit of Jesus into everything else that we've already been. And, and you know, we accepted Jesus, so we're good to go, right? You can't just accept Jesus and add a little bit of God into the rest of your life. 
It's not like it's not like we can just picture all of the gods in a big Royal Rumble wrestling match. And whichever God we anticipate would walk out victorious. Ah, yeah, that's the God I support. I'll wear the T-shirt just like we do with our sports team. They'll say, I'm the Seahawks. We have nothing to do with them. We just wear the shirt. Verse 19 and 20, Joshua gives some pretty strong words concerning those who think they can just accept Jesus but then continue living for themselves, continue serving those false idols, continue serving themselves, continue serving their families, continue serving their career, continue serving their, their, their retirement. Joshua is saying, you can't take this choice lightly. It's not a matter of accepting. Because if you do, you won't really be choosing God you really continue serving everything else. God's not concerned with our acceptance. What God wants is he wants our surrender. He wants our full surrender. He's concerned not about our acceptance, but he's concerned about whether we will surrender our entire life to him. In fact, if you flip forward to the New Testament, all throughout the Gospels in the New Testament, Jesus speaks toward the cost of what it means to truly follow him. In Luke 14, there was a bandwagon of people, a multitude of people who were following after Jesus. And, and, and they, were, they were drawn to Jesus' miracles. They're drawn to all the things that Jesus did. And remember what Jesus said to them. He said, Luke 14, 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Was Jesus concerned about people accepting him? No. He was concerned about whether or not people would surrender their lives to him. It's more than just accepting Jesus. Jesus continued in the next verse, verse 28, and said, You must count the cost to become a disciple. See, I think Joshua was kind of doing the same thing. Before you make that decision, who will you serve? Who will you follow? Who will you surrender to? He's wanting you to count the cost. Are you really willing to fully surrender your life to Jesus? Too frequently what we do is we package Jesus in a little cellophane package. We picture Jesus full of joy and peace and provision. And we kind of picture him being kind of like a double strength and twice as fast aspirin that will make everything in life so much better. And you continue doing all the things, but Jesus is a little aspirin that makes everything feel so much better. Jesus made it clear. Actually, Matthew sixteen twenty five. Jesus said this. He said, whoever will save his life or whoever will continue to focus his life on himself. Whoever will continue to focus his life on his career, on, 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 on relationships, on, on whatever it is, whatever false idol that we serve, that we, we dedicate our life to, whoever will save his life, even maybe with a little bit of Jesus, he says, will lose his life. But whoever will lose his life for God's sake, will what? Will find it. The choice requires not a half-hearted commitment. It can't be add a little bit of Jesus into your life. It can't be accept him because he's better than the other options. We are to count the cost. 
Because the choice requires a full and complete surrender of ourselves to him. So that is the context that Joshua gives us when he asks this question. The first context was you got to come to grips with who God is. And that results in not just sincerity and faithfulness, but it comes from a, a genuine biblical fear of the Lord. A reverence to who he is. And secondly, your choice can't be a matter of, of mere convenience or acceptance. The, the choice requires that we count the cost. And that we are willing to surrender our entire lives to Jesus. So the question I have for you now is this. Who will you serve? Choose this day who you will serve. Whether you will serve the, 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 the idols and the false gods. Whether you will serve yourself. But as for me, I will serve the Lord. As for me, I choose to serve the Lord. As we transition now into a time of response to our message this morning. See, here at Restoration Church, we believe that when God's word is spoken, it requires a response. Every one of us should have a response to God's word. Some of us, you're coming in today, you're saying, man, I've, I've got so much going on and, and I just feel the weight of, of life. And, and some of you, you just need to take this time and cry out and say, that God of amazing grace, I need to experience that here today. I need to experience one of those exodus moments where life feels so heavy and is falling apart. And God, I need you to show up. I need to grasp who you are. I need to see your grace here today. And my prayer is that you would have the opportunity during this time of response to close your eyes and to call out to God and say, God, I need to meet with you here. Would you wrap your love around me? Would you fill me with your spirit? During this time of response, if, if you want someone to pray with you, you want to come forward, I'd love to, uh, I'll be up here in the front row. I'd love to come. I'd love for you to come forward. And I'd love to have the opportunity to pray for you and encourage you through whatever you're going through. But I think the big thing for every one of us, the big response will be that choice. Who will you serve? You know the context of what God is looking for. You know the context that this choice is not a casual acceptance, but it is a lifestyle. So we have the communion elements up here today. And what I want to encourage us to do is I want to encourage us to spend some time just between us and the Lord. Say, God, do I really have a biblical fear, a reverent submission to who you are? Do I really, have I really committed my entire life to you? Or have I just tried to add a little bit of you on top of everything else? And as we have that opportunity during the first worship time to ask ourselves these questions, I want us to really pursue that. And I want us to really be ready to make that choice. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. And when we've made that decision, when we've made our choice, I invite you to come forward and make that choice over the communion elements. Because that choice costs so much much. That choice cost Jesus his life. Where he went to the cross, he gave up his life for every one of us so that we could make that choice, so we could have a relationship with him.
So I encourage you, spend some time between you and the Lord. Pray, seek, repent. And when you're ready, I encourage you to come forward and partake of the elements. The Apostle Paul describes communion as an act of worship. It's a way to respond, to remember what God has done for us. To remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. The bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. And and the juice represents Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. The Apostle Paul also says that before we partake of communion, we should examine ourselves, examine our hearts. And if there's any sin, any unconfessed sin, that we have that opportunity to confess that before the Lord and make things right before we take communion. So we're going to have two or three worship songs coming up now. And I encourage you to take some time between you and the Lord in your seat. Make sure things are right. Make sure that you have made that choice and the choice is clear, that you understand the implications and the context of what God says in that choice. And when you're ready, I invite you to come forward. We don't take the elements together. We want you to do it when you are ready. You're welcome to come forward to take the elements. You can take them up here. You can take them back to your seat. Would you pray with me? God, you are so amazing, more amazing than we could ever understand or realize. And God, I pray for every one of us in here today. God, I pray that we would see you for who you truly are. That we would see you as being greater than anything this world has to offer. That we would see you in your amazing grace. That we would see you in your amazing love for every one of us. That God, we would see that you are the God above all else, above creation, the sovereign God, the powerful God, the God who has the power to change everything. And God, I pray that as you help us to see you for who you are, that we would respond with a biblical fear, a reverent submission, that God, you are the God and I am not. And because you're God, I surrender myself to you. I submit myself to you. And God, I pray that you would change me, that you would change the areas of my life that do not honor you, that, that, that bring shame to you. God, I pray that you would help us to have that kind of reverent submission. And God, I pray for every one of us that we would realize it's not just about accepting you, but it's about surrendering surrendering ourselves to you. It's about being fully committed to you and every part. That we no longer live for ourselves. We no longer live for what this world has to offer, but now we fully live for you. God, you are worthy love of all for honor and glory and praise. And as the worship team will lead us in a couple of songs of response, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to respond to who you are. I pray as we see these, these words on the screen, as we hear these words, that, Lord, we could actually say them from the depths of our heart. That we surrender our all to you. That we will serve you wherever you go. We will be obedient to you. I pray, God, that these would be things that aren't just words, but they would be our response to you. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.